All right. Hello, everybody. I'm Devin Triantos. Robert, welcome. Thank you very much for being here. Everybody, this is Robert Tadina, uh, mountain climber, uh, ski patroller, uh, international man of mystery, man about town. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll let you speak more to, to, to the introduction of your personage, um, but I'm, I'm just manic right now because uh, I've been working with technical difficulties with the, the computer, so I'm super glad that this is working right now. I believe that we are rocking and rolling. So welcome, good to see you. Good to see you too. Um, can you see me all right? I believe that I can, you're, you're on the screen. Uh, I could take a snapshot to make sure that we're recording it well and we are. Uh, so yeah, warm welcome. I'm really glad to be able to get the opportunity to have a conversation and share it with everybody. Uh, I'm a big fan of yours. You inspire me to uh, climb, to ski, to do the things that I already enjoyed doing and grew up doing, uh, simply to see your passion and, and, and the similar love of the mountains that you, that you obviously have. And so, uh, good on you, man. Uh, uh what's on your mind? What's new? Uh, you know, what's going on? Well, that's very high praise coming from you. Um, I definitely wanted to extend to you the same kind of consideration like you inspire me as well. I kind of wish that I could have some of your motivation, but that always comes and goes. Um, right now, honestly, there's not a whole lot on my mind. I'm kind of enjoying this uh, pandemic in sense just because I live in a beautiful place. So I get the luxury to go into my backyard to recreate. Aside from that, I don't think much else has changed. I'm still ski patrolling, still skiing, still doing the occasional climb. I hear you. Are you working mountain medics right now? I wish I was. Um, work, uh, it's possible, but it's not working right now. So we're on the cusp of maybe getting some work and doing some screening and whatnot, but that's on hold at the moment. Sure. We seem to be getting kind of a late winter, aren't we? It's it's still coming, huh? Yeah. I was I was thinking like, oh, you know, if February continues the way it does and there's no snow, I can probably get into summer activities. But no, I'm not bummed out about that, though. Right. Right. It was it was it was almost a curtain call. And then we got a few more storms and and uh, I've been able to get some powder. I just went this morning up Tumalo and it was awesome. Uh, really enjoyed myself. I had a a phone call at 11 and so i'm like fuck can i pull it off can i get up there and get down you know in, in time to take the call i don't want to i don't you know i don't want to miss the opportunity and uh man it was great i did i did one lap up there and and uh and and got some good snow man it was too funny i forgot my ski pants so i get there with my bag of all my shit and i i fucking don't have my, my ski pants so i'm like well i'm doing this right like that's not that's not in question uh, so I fucking did it in jeans, dude. Yeah. You know, sent it. And I didn't have my goggles either, but luckily it was good overcast. So it wasn't too sunny and the, and the snow wasn't too reflective and uh, mm. made it happen, man. Um, I, I appreciate you saying that about motivation. Um, but bro, the truth is uh, I've had to, I've had to cultivate the ability to force myself to do shit over over a long period of time over many years and and a lot of it's been consuming media by by other dudes who 
you know, our voices of that, like, uh, oh, one second, I got, I got a pie in the oven. Just give me, let me grab it real quick. Um, uh, but, um, like, you know, the, the, the reality of the ability to, um, to make myself do shit has, has come from, being able to put myself in the position of myself in the future and thinking through like, like I know I'm going to feel good if I can make myself do X, Y, Z. And I know I'm going to feel shitty if I don't. And so I just think about the end result, you know, not that I have any, you know, better access to that than anybody else. But like, I, I, I focus on the result as opposed to the, the like struggle of doing it. And, and usually that, that can make me get, get up and go. But that being said, I only really have that, like that dogged determination to do the shit that I love to do, like ski, you know, like mm -hmm. if it comes to like studying, I don't have that same <laughs> focus or, or motivation. So I'm uh you know, uh, uh, I'm still. I can like, agree with you on the, the the motivation about like that you wouldn't feel good if you went out and did it. A lot of times, if I'm like having trouble getting up in the morning or I got a hangover and I'm still planning on skiing, I find that just like taking a step back and thinking to myself, "What you, what else are you gonna do?" It's maybe not like a very healthy mindset, but that gets me out of the door quite a lot. It's just like, well, I'm not gonna be doing anything more valuable than this. And the fact of the matter is, as soon as I get to the parking lot as soon as i get out of my car door it's like there's no more need for motivation i'm there i want to be there and the one other one that really helps that i found out is um going out with you know other people going out with friends which is becoming a little bit more difficult now but having a partner especially one that you go skiing or climbing with often can be huge for getting like the maximum amount of days with the most amount of benefit both like vertical benefit getting those ski laps and just making sure you're getting out i hear that i tried to get buddies to ski um to surf with me years ago when i was in santa cruz and it was almost a hundred percent failure like i would get some guys to go with me and some gals to go with me and and literally zero of those people wanted to go a second time because yeah. I found my, my surfing practice, you know, and I used, I use that word intentionally cause I, I do equate it to like a yogic practice, I think in the way that it's like extremely personal, right? It's like, I always would surf for me cause I think it, it, it helped me make, you know, be a better dude. And like would, would allow me to process my own shit and, and connect with something bigger than myself. And I definitely feel that way about skiing as well. And the people that I have been able to link up with in that practice are people that have come to like meet me organically. Like it was never like me like asking somebody else to go. It was like we skied together because we, we both loved to ski and we happened to be at the same place at the same time, right? Like you were doing you, you feel me? And mm -hmm. like, that's something that I've struggled with because like I wanted to, you know, get people to come and surf with me, but it was only the dude that I met while surfing 
And like another dude who like came to me and's like, I want to surf with you. Like, let's go. That served as like buddies that I could call upon and not to go too like philosophical, but like I greatly value those two sports in my life. They've really, really helped me develop my, myself and my character and, and my ability to, to push through, you know, difficult, difficult circumstances and so forth. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I do wish for everybody, not that I, not that that's my, my MO, but like, I think it would be great if everybody, if all of us had something that they love that is as healthy as, as, as much as I love and, and find skiing to be healthy and surfing to be healthy. I wonder what your take is, if you could speak on your experience of skiing and climbing. And I wonder if there, if, if, if there's some commonality to, 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 you know, what I'm, what I'm talking about. Yeah, I'd agree with you on that. I think um, one of the things that we probably get the most out of these activities is the hardship that's associated with them. I mean, as I'm sure you're well familiar with, especially with the kind of swims that you've done and the training that you've done for those swims, is that, I mean, your character really benefits both who you are and like also how kind I feel that I can be when I'm putting myself through a hardship. And the cool thing about skiing and climbing and maybe even surfing is like you're deliberately going out there and making yourself uncomfortable. Not everybody is going to do that. It's not a comfortable thing. I think you do have to be a little uh, restless to be able to go and do those kind of things. And on top of that, when you're doing something dangerous with inherent risk, you're gaining a better perspective of what you are actually scared of. Because one of the best things that ever happened to me regarding my self-esteem was going climbing, dealing with objective hazards and fatal consequences, and putting that into perspective in my own life. And it made social interaction so much easier because I realized, oh, if I can handle being several hundred feet up on a rope on a cliff or dealing with avalanche hazard or various unknowns, the rest of it becomes quite a lot easier. So I think it's maybe not so much the specific sport that we're doing, but the hardship that's associated with it that we get a lot out of. That's beautiful. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that there's a lot there. I think that it, like you say, like it, it must, you know, the, the pursuit of dif difficult experiences recalibrate our, um, our, our, our danger response system, our, our, our um, uh, you know, um, autonomic response uh, you know, with, with sympathetic, you know, nervous, uh, system discharge, like it, it, it makes you a more mellow dude, right? Like, and, and, um, maybe, maybe it is, uh, a, a funny analog, like in a meme format is like, uh, people think that all the people at a yoga class are like enlightened and relaxed and, and well-adjusted. He's like, dude, we're all here cause we're nuts. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that that what you touched on when you said work, you know, the restless maybe are given to extreme sports or, or outdoor, you know, adventure sports um, more so um, is is an interesting point. Um, I hadn't thought about that, but but it it, it seems almost self evident that there has to be something driving a person. I, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but like I certainly became really 
focused on skiing and surfing because what I was being given as, as the normative option, living in the city and working a sales job and like navigating my social ties and stuff was so contrived and was so, was so false in my own, like in the way that they felt to me that I just, I, I fucking, I got restless. I think that that's a good word for it. I got something in me was, was not calm. Something very deep inside of me was not calm. And it was when I would go surf. And I mean, I keep talking about surfing because surfing is kind of in my experience, in, in my story, the, the thing that I did for years and years before I really oriented myself to skiing, before I moved to Tahoe, met my wife, before we moved to Shasta. Um, and yeah, man, the ocean and the mountains have been the place where I was able to challenge myself and focus myself and, and take on that, that danger of the natural world and, and objectively, you know, navigate it. And, and so, yeah, I think that's beautiful, man. I, I certainly am a much more calm, less defensive, less prone to react inappropriately kind of dude when I, you know, do my practice when I'm, when I'm out there skiing and, and, and challenging myself regularly. So yeah, that's interesting. Um, what must it be like to be a person that's not, you know, how, how, how could a person just accept the false, you know, the, 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 the story narrated to them that's not intrinsic, that's not based on their own overcoming of obstacles. I don't know. I can only really speak to, to what I've experienced. And, and I think that you, 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 you hit the nail on the head. Yeah, I don't know how they handle it either, but I got to say I'm maybe a little jealous of them. Yeah, right? It's like, <laughs> it's like just to be, to be... Calm and content with... I guess that lifestyle, you know, I've got a couple of friends and I mean, when I look at their life, I think, God, I hope they're not miserable. But when I get to know just how they're doing, it doesn't sound like they ever are. It sounds like they're doing what they want to. They've got their own, their own challenges that they're going to work through and maybe they don't crave like some kind of hardship and maybe they don't have the itch that we do, but I don't think that they're going to suffer anymore because of it. Sometimes I think that we suffer more because we have that itch, but uh, it's definitely led me to some really beautiful places. What do you think it is? What do you think the itch is? If you had to try to conceptualize it. You know, this sounds a little maybe crazy, but um, sometimes I like to think that it's almost a genetic uh, kind of warrior drive that previously, you know, in times of war, hardship, um, in a simpler life where we would probably get conscripted to the army, that that was just something that was part of a lot of people's lives. And now that we're living in such a calm, um, especially criminally stable, relatively criminally stable country, that we don't see that, we don't experience it, and it's still inside of us to go through that hardship, to fight somehow. And that, in my mind, makes some sense. But honestly, I'm not entirely sure. That's interesting. I, 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 I dig the willingness to look all the way down to genetics, all the way down to you know the deepest level of our being 
for you know the motivation for our behavior i i i um think that there's a lot of truth to that weirdly at the top of tumalo this morning i was listening to music and uh i like went through all the genres like i started out with like like the fucking you know super contemporary um i listened to this guy akira the dawn and he he makes uh, electronic songs and on top of them he has lyrics from really like neat speakers like david goggins or joppa willing or joe rogan or jordan peterson just like super inspirational fire up shit you know and and then i was like well i've listened to just about everything that this guy's ever put out on youtube and he has hundreds of, of songs and so then i went to like some hip-hop roots roots and i'm like you know the like get pussy and and you know make money doesn't really inspire me especially when i'm somewhere so majestic as, as a snow-covered mountain and so i was kind of just thinking through like what kind of jams I wanted to hear. And I, 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 I got to the peak ready to, to ski some powder listening to, um, I don't know if it was Marty Robbins or, or, or Jim Norton or one of these guys, Jim Norton might not be the right word, but it's the ballad of the Alamo. And it's a, oh. it's a beautiful song, bro. And I'm not making this up at the, at the kind of crescendo line of it. I, I started almost tearing up. I, I got choked up. Um, and it's just the story of the men who, who volunteered and defended the Alamo. And, uh, you know, it's a Western ballad. And so the only reason I bring that up is... that is, the name of the song, The Ballad of the Alamo? I believe it's The Ballad of the Alamo, yes, sir. Uh, and it's like, um, in the southern part of Texas, in the town of San Antonio, lies a dun in ruin that the weeds have overgrown. Uh, you may look in vain for crosses and ne'er see a one, but sometimes between the setting and the rising of the sun, it's a very, very beautiful song. And um, I felt in my bones an expression of that, of that um, willing warrior spirit, and not in any sense aggr aggressive. Maybe that's not the right word, but not not in an effort to like go out and invade, but in the sense of like, I can own my space. I can defend the weak, not because I'm so great, but because I'm willing to draw a line in the sand. And that's a powerful thing to feel. And I think it's something to navigate. It's, it's something to to navigate responsibly. Right. Like, you know, like to realize that you're a strong person is to, I think at the same time, realize that you have the responsibility to do well and not ill with that strength, right? Like there, do you, don't, don't you feel a responsibility with what you've learned and built in, 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 in strength in yourself? Sorry, what was the question? I say, don't you feel a responsibility as part and parcel of the the wisdom that you've learned and the strength that, that you've built from climbing mountains and, and skiing good lines. I mean, I suppose it's self-evident in that you work as a ski patroller, but, but do you feel what I'm saying? Like, do you, do you, do would you agree that there's a, um, not only this, like we're saying a restlessness that maybe is a manifestation of this, of this warrior, DNA that 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 is not happy unless it's it's being challenged and developed and evolved into 
you know, further expression, but don't, but don't you feel a great kind of responsibility to use it positively? Funny enough, I'm not sure if I really do, but that's definitely the reaction. Um, a lot of times I've thought that, you know, like the, I guess the, the kind things that I do to others and it is a, a selfish thing. And I still kind of do think that because it makes me feel so much better helping others out. It's it takes such little effort to do so that I, I don't know if I feel like a responsibility to it, but I do it and I continue to do it and I'm definitely not going to stop. It makes me feel better and I don't want to feel bad for not helping other individuals. And it's just. I mean, yeah, when it comes down to it, it's almost a selfish thing. Like, I really enjoy helping others. Like, I feel like I get the most out of it. I hear you. What new lessons have you learned from what you've been up to in the last, you know, six months, year, year and a half? I got one really good one, and that is um, it might – I got this from a friend of mine, too. His, uh, his name is Shabby. I was rereading one of his climbing write-ups, and it was about a very problematic trip that he guided on. And he kind of almost quit climbing after that trip. It was such a bad one. And the one message that I got from it is there might not be a silver lining. You can find one. Surely it might take you years to find that silver lining, but you can't ever let a failure, specifically one failure or any failures, keep you from continuing to do what you want to do. And that is honestly something that I've kind of carried around for a couple of years is holding on to failures in mountaineering, which funny enough, like you're never going to be a good mountaineer if you can't let go of your failures. So just realizing that, you know, things will happen in the past. Um, there doesn't need to be a silver lining to move past it. I dig that. That one's been kind of difficult, but I'm working on it. I've, I've, heard, I've heard the same in so many forms from a lot of different sources that I, that I respect, people that have accomplished great things. Um, you know, it, it's trite to just say, well, listen to this quote. But, but I mean, I, I can pull a, a few just off the top of my head, like, success is is uh failing with enthusiasm or like fail up or the a winner is somebody who never let losing stop them or you know um the the the, the master has failed more times than the novice have he, has even tried right like that that wisdom is encoded in a lot of different systems of, of thought and uh yeah it's, it's easy to read it you know it's fucking easy to hear it, right? But it's a different thing to experience it. And um, yeah, man, I've, I've failed at everything I've ever done. Uh, I say that tritely because I've heard other people say it, and I think it's cool. It's a cool way to say it. But I mean, I, I probably, in, in analysis, would say it's not far from the truth. My wife's struggling to open the, the couch. Are you, do you got it, Nick? Okay, she's, she's frustrated. Um, she's failing, see? And let's see if she gets through it. Yeah, I got a smile out of her, so that's good. Um, yeah, that's beautiful, man. Um, you know, I, so often we're told the opposite, right? 
so often the the systems that we find ourselves in are based on on you know our performance and then that need be accepted as a component of our identity in the classroom or in the group right like who has the highest score or whatever but the game doesn't end does it it just keeps going right like there's mm. just always another game yeah there's always another opportunity to try as long as you're willing to show up yeah yeah, man, I, I like that. I think that's very, very cool uh, to hold on to. Um, you know, it's another one is 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 it's impossible. It's possible to beat a person who never gives up. You know, mm -hmm. I think that's beautiful, man. So, what's on your mind? What is uh, what's your motivation, plans, uh, objectives moving forward? Well, uh, over the last couple of years, I've kind of dropped out of mountaineering and. But kind of tying back into what we said, um, I had something of like uh, repeated failures in the mountains, and I, I think I was putting, I was creating limitations for myself. I'm starting to see that now. So, it, for once, it doesn't feel like I'm going to be taking a step back by going back into mountaineering. So that's going to be my primary objective. Really, is just getting back, keeping my crampons on as much as possible, and finding some new climbing partners you know that's always a huge one climbing is definitely uh, a team sport for loners <laughs> a team sport for loners i like that well yeah. I'm, I'm no great mountaineer but bro anytime you want to climb i'm i'm more than happy to to go and learn from you and and get after it so that's that's um a foregone conclusion so you got a friend in me you got a climbing partner in me uh just for what it's worth um uh, but what else can I can I put to you to put your uh, to to pick your brain rather? Um, how, I, I saw a post that you had posted about the season at Shasta. What can you tell me about the season at Shasta this year, the the 2019-2020 ski season? Um, well, for me it was very enjoyable. It started off pretty early, and I uh, got a got to go on a trip up to Canada and do some cat skiing up there and some backcountry. And got to come back to the ski park and do the usual ski patrol thing, dealing with broken bones and setting stuff up, tearing stuff down. And it was just strange, uh, the events that followed or the events that were immediately preceding closing, just with the upcoming of the virus, the significant lack of snow, the promise of snow, the change of schedule, and then getting a hard shutdown because of the virus. At the same time, we got a total dump. So it was uh, it was a little difficult keeping everything dry with all the fresh snow on the ground, pulling everything out of the hill. But um, all in all, it was a really good season. And uh, skiing dirt is a lot more fun than it looks. Skiing dirt? I, why would you Why were you skiing dirt if there was so much snow? Well, there wasn't always so much snow. As you remember, in February, we didn't get a single inch. I see. I see. Well, wh what are you seeing in your neck of the woods with the virus? Uh, in Siskiyou County, I believe there's only three confirmed cases, but mainly it's just a social effect. Um, Bunny Flat has been very popular, actually. Um, the whole social distancing thing doesn't seem to exist up there right now. Uh, well, other than that, I haven't been going to the bar. That's good. Are you cutting down your drinking or you're just not drinking at the bar? 
Well, the bar is closed, but as a result, I've been cutting down on drinking. Good for you, man. No bullshit. I applaud anybody, you know, who uh, overcomes, not, not, not putting this on you, but just in the abstract, who overcomes alcoholism. I, I um, have seen alcoholism be a real, real tough thing for a lot of people. Alcohol and cigarettes, I have really um, uh, seen the devastations of. Um, and, uh, yeah, man, I, uh, I like being around people that ski and climb because I think that there's kind of a, a magic in, 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 uh, these folks because you, you, you tend to, to get close to nature. You're, you're in storms, right? You're up on the, the high mountains and, and, um, at the very least, I think we can, we can, uh, learn things about ourselves and, and grow and so forth, um, so yeah, uh, I mean, what's on your mind, dude? What's new? What 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 are you thinking about? Um, I, you know, what, what what are you interested in talking about? Because I I, I don't want to just drive uh, the conversation the whole time unless unless you, you you'd like me to. Um, well, there's a couple things that I'd be happy to tell you about, but not on the recording. Okay, just fair enough. We'll talk. We'll talk offline. Yeah, no worries. Um, well, tell me about Canada. Where did you go in Canada? Oh, yeah. So Canada trip was a great trip. It was my cousin's bachelor party. Okay. Um, he grew up in this Mount Shasta area. He'd been skiing here. We'd been skiing together since we were probably six or something like that. He moved up to Montana. So I went up there, met him in Montana, started to get together with his uh, group of friends, which, by the way, was an incredible social experience. I'd never been around that many good athletic riders. Um a lot of whom were beating me on the uphill, but I'm going to blame the altitude for that. I forgot Bridger's a little high up there. Huh. So um, skiing was great, steep. It was definitely the first time that I got into terrain that was like 45 degrees or temporarily. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh, shit, 45 is no joke. People that don't ski don't have a sense of... Yeah, slope. 45 is supposed to be like this. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's what every slope is. It's like... Oh, yeah. man. Wow. So that was really fun. Um, had some interesting encounters there, too. There was a, let's see here, one of the first resorts that we went to up at Whitewater. Uh, we were doing lapping on this kind of slack country, side country, just a little bit inbounds area. And they got hit with a bunch of snow. The tree well hazard was through the roof. So... I uh, made sure to communicate that to the other guys because they were always used to skiing up in Montana. They don't have the snowpack that creates the kind of tree wells that we've seen on the West Coast. And it's a good thing we did. We set up a radio communication. We had a large group, um, nine people, I believe it was. Wow, and, on a mountain. Yeah, but we did do a good job of keeping track of everybody and where they were. And I'm glad that we did because as we'd come to find out a couple hours later, Somewhere in that run, there was somebody uh, who died uh, asphyxiated in the tree well. So, not not one of your group. Not one of our group, no. But somebody but that day. That day, while we were skiing it, yeah, they they ran the toboggan, the AED over there. They ran the code and they pronounced him dead at the bottom of the hill. So it was like a big wake up call. Like, oh, let's not forget what we're doing, and. Even the next day when we went casking, there was another close call. One of our group members hit a tree, um, 
I didn't hear back if he broke his leg, but he did enough damage that walking on it was problematic. And he went inverted into a tree well. Uh. Now, fortunately, the tail guide pretty much saw that happen. So he was able to get there immediately, clear his airway, and we conducted a quick little rescue to get him out of there. But, I mean, for one, skiing Canada was incredible, deep powder. But, of course, whenever the skiing's good, there's always inherent risks involved. And it was probably the first time that I got that close to that many risks. Um, but we handled it well as a group. For anybody listening to this, I want to describe what a tree well is. Because if somebody's not like a skier, it may not make a lot of sense. But just in short, when there's a lot of snowfall in a short period of time, I think is often one of the one of the quickest ways to create a tree well hazard. And that is, if you think about a tree, you know, it it it, it flares out at the at the base, right? By virtue of the fact that it's kind of like a triangular um, silhouette, and the Snow are outside of that circle, if you like, if you're looking down on it, is more, more stable, consistent, you know, um, structurally sound. But right under that tree, it's often looks as if it's, if it, you know, it's solid and, and equally, um, you know, uh, supportive, but it can just be very, very, very lightly packed, much less dense, uh, if, if even to the same um, hide it all. And so what we see as ski patrollers and, you know, are aware of in the ski community and what kills a lot of people, as you've said, uh, that you saw firsthand is, uh, is people can, can go into a tree well. Now going in upright is one thing, you know, if you imagine being in quicksand, uh, anybody listening to this or, or being in light snow, you know, powder snow, you can, you can, you know, dive into it and it's almost like diving in water. But if you go in upside down, if you catch an edge, as we say, and go over the, over the front of your skis or, or fall in in such a way where you're like diving in, um, you know, uh, it can be an extremely dangerous situation because uh, snow is an interesting thing in that it has a lot of different characteristics and different, um, you know, amounts of moisture, different temperatures and all these things. It's, it's, it's really a dynamic thing. It's not like there's snow or there's not snow. Snow is very, very dynamic. And so... Yes, yeah, so, so tree wells are, are, are one of the most deadly um, uh, hazards in the, in the ski sport. So I just wanted to speak to that. So uh, the area right under a tree um, can, can be like a well, can be like something that a person can fall into. So, um, so yeah, but, but go on. I'm sorry, you're, you're, you're telling me about the, the, the Canada trip and, and, and your experience of skiing up there. And um, God, that, that must have been tough to, to, to see that. Yeah, it was definitely very concerning when the uh, initial radio call came over the radio um, that, you know, one of our teammates was in there injured and upside down. But, uh, you know, because of being that close to it, I'm kind of glad that the rest of those guys were able to see that because they, you know, just like you said, the way the tree well forms, you need a lot of snow. But for where they're, where they're used to skiing over in Bozeman, they have very light density snow that compacts down with solar radiation very quickly. So they don't get the formation of these tree wells because the snow cools, thaws, and refreezes. Um, but yeah, it can be a big deal over here. So anyways, um, the Canada trip was quite nice. Uh, we probably slept three hours every night and drank an absurd amount. I can't believe that they can do that so many days in a row. But, 
Yeah. Uh, Not man, me, man. I, I, I throw up invariably if I drink more than like a beer. Like oh, I'm man. Kinda, I have the kind of constitution where I, if I take a shot of, of alcohol, it's like 50, 50 when it, when it gets into my, you know, my, my stomach, like it's either coming back up right now or, you know, maybe I can, I can get through it. So I, I'm, I, I don't drink it at all. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't begrudge anybody's vices because I certainly have my own, but um, alcohol's a bitch, man. It, it, it uh, doesn't give a fuck who you are, and it, it can be really devastating. So I'm, I'm, I'm often a voice to anybody that wants to have the conversation of the, of the evils of, of alcohol, and to be fair, of the, of the um, associated benefits of cannabis. So uh, that's, that, my, that happens to be my opinion. But uh but yeah, um, well, how nice. So, so you had a nice trip to Canada, uh, and that was, that was early season, and you did some cat skiing. Yeah. Awesome. Um, got that set up just because, you know, cousin's bachelor party, so we all pitched in a chunk of money and went out, and it was very enjoyable. Like I said, it was a very skilled group of individuals. Because of that, we were able to open up some new terrain that the guides hasn't, hadn't previously been able to go into. Awesome. Um, and yeah, it was... Uh, uh, completely untouched ever since the snow started falling at the beginning of the year nobody had ever been over there and touched it it was probably eight feet of powder or more um enough to be dangerous if you just stopped right right wow wow i haven't been in snow like that many times in my life but uh yeah it's a thing when the snow is so uh deep that one has to keep their speed just to make it through it huh yeah wow wow well that's very cool so so what else what else of note mm. are you reading any books are you listening to any podcasts are you uh finding anything interesting in your zone uh right now well um I read a lot of climbing books. I, I read a lot of guidebooks, funny enough. I'll read a guidebook kind of like I read um, a novel. Is so, a guidebook like a assortment of beta, like 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 data on a climb? Is it like reading like a like a boulder thing where you're like, this is the problem and this is the route and so forth? Is it is that what a I don't even I wouldn't even know what a guidebook is. Gotcha. So uh, the guidebook well, yeah, basically a guidebook is um, information on specific climbs. It tells you where the climb is, how difficult a climb is. It kind of breaks it down into different sections of the climb, showing you where to make an anchor, where to go up, the preferred time, who to talk to about conditions, maps, and on and on and on. And the recent one that I've been reading through, again, is The Bold and Cold, about 25 very difficult um, climbs in the Canadian Rockies. And, uh, yeah, if you look up that guy, Fred Becky, like I said, you'll find some of those routes as well that he pioneered when he was, geez, I think he was doing first ascents up there when he was 50 and 60 still. Wow. Is he still alive? No, he died in 2017 at the age of uh, 93 or 94. Wow. Still living out of his car. Just perennial dirtbag. Oh, yeah, lifelong. Wow. Wow. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, uh, have you ever read any of the books about, um, by 
the first wave of, I wonder if we've ever talked about this, European climbers that took people into the Himalaya, like Lionel Ture and Gaston Rebuffa and those, those guys? No, I have not. You'll have to send me some of those. I'll, I'll definitely take a look at them. I have read a little bit into um, Swiss and French mountain guides that went over into British Columbia's of Canada in the late 1800s to assist with the construction of the railroad. Oh, and wow. that's kind of where like climbing in the Canadian Rockies initially started. And it's a pretty interesting history because um, having these European climbers come out to North America, they were able to use their techniques from the steep, aggressive, glaciated mountains over in Europe and apply them over in British Columbia, which, funny enough, uh, does have some similarly looking mountains. In what way are the two ranges or the two regimes or, or what, what, whatever the right way is to speak of it different? What, what are the main differences between like the Alps and the British Columbian like Rockies or the, the, mm. the ranges there? Uh, one of the first differences you'll notice is over in Europe, as far as I know, because I've never climbed over there, is that you'll have um, a very integrated community serving the climbers or a lot of um, resources available to the climbers, including mid-mountain huts, um, very skilled and well-instructed and drilled rescue teams that are familiar with doing a lot of different rescue operations out there. And, you know, over in Canada, you don't quite have as many of those things. You definitely do have places that you can camp, places where you can get a lot of information, but you're not going to find any cities out in those Rockies. I think the closest and biggest one you'd find would be Banff. And then beyond that, um, just outside of the British Columbia area, Calgary. Uh, another major difference is the rock quality. The Canadian Rockies is not the best rock quality normally. Um, is that How so? It's crumbly? It's not consolidated. It's not like granite or something that's real, real. Uh, yeah. Hard. That's interesting. Exactly. Yeah, dude. The the books that I'm talking about, you you you'd get a kick out of. Um, so you know about the first ascents of you know Everest and and K2 and um, what is it, Dalagiri or something like this. Yeah, Dalagiri. Right, right. Um, and then there's another one that's that. Uh, the name escapes me. Uh, I think it started with an N. Um, I can't remember, but but the the real high. Nagaparbat, maybe. Uh, Nagaparbat's another one of those. What eight thousand meters? What? But that's not the one I'm thinking of. Um, but it's not important. It's it's that I I got really intrigued with with that period of history. Um, in that, I couldn't tell you exactly when it happened. Um, you know, historically, but at that time what gear those guys had access to and you know what I'm saying what they were using relative to what we're using now is just like you know unbelievably different and mm -hmm. um, and these guys got it done and the uh, aristocrats that had the money to get over there right and get the get the you know the crown behind them or the, or the government of their nation behind them to to um, to um, fund these these efforts uh, conscripted or, or you know contracted the best climbing guides that they could and those guys happened to be you know the stud french climbers and 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 uh you know german and austrian i think it was a, a, a there was a real big push of, of of nationalism 
in yeah. and, I, and I and I I'm I'm not a history buff, so I don't know if it was pre World War One or post World War One, like in between the two World Wars, or if it was after World War Two or even much before that. I really don't know, so don't don't quote me on that. But uh, um, yeah, there was a couple guys who wrote books and um, really 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 interesting. Uh, the one that stuck with me that I resonated with was Gaston Rebuffat, who was the French guy. They used to call him ghastly rubber fat because he was like a little bit pudgy. He was like a little mm -hmm. bit overweight, but um, he had a really French sensibility. So where, where the Germans and the Austrians were militant and, you know, uh, how would you say, um, you know, hardcore and regimented and and well-planned and engineered and and you know they went to war with the mountain and battled up each pitch and and they you know laid siege to a face the french you know would take in the environment and 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 you know watch the rhythm of the of the storms and listen to the sounds of of you know the the regime and and uh and climb with a romance about them in terms of the way that they spoke about climbing and thought about climbing and approached their climbing. And Gaston Rebuffat was one of these guys who put up first ascents of some of the 8,000 meter peaks in the Himalaya um, and, would, and would guide others. And they would talk about him in the way that, you know, in, with, with no controversy, he was of the best of the best. I mean, he was that level, you know, he was, he was top notch. And yet, had a um, very different uh, way of approaching the mountains than um, these these different groups. And uh, he wrote a book called Starlight and Storm, and it's uh, it's his take on their first ascents of some. Oh, Annapurna is one of the is the one that I, I was thinking started with an N. Annapurna, um, and uh, yeah, man, that always spoke to me. I I don't do well with logistics. I'm not a very, uh, I just took a left brain versus right brain uh, test. And I don't know which is which, but one is your like logical, rational, um, you know, reasoned uh, uh, inside of the box, right? Like computational thinking. And the other is your, you know, intuitive, creative, um, lateral, you know, um, uh, you know, compassionate, yeah, emotional thinking and I am like in the 89th percentile like in the top 11th percentile for that side so that was interesting to hear because I, I I do think really conceptually I do think really abstractly I do tend to think laterally and like if somebody tells me like this is the way to do it instantly I'm thinking of other ways to do it you know what I mean like um and and I find that people like that Gaston Rebuffat really resonate with me because when somebody is true to themselves and then goes on to do great things, instantly I'm a fan of that person. And if somebody does great things, but they're like a zealot for a cause or a way of thinking or some system of, of ideology or, you know, if, they, if they're just like inside of a box of, of, of whatever way of looking at the world, I tend to discount their achievements and that's on my own bias. So take it with a grain of salt, but I just think there's something beautiful to being a, a person first, you know, being a self first, being you like intrinsic to the values that, that you hold dear and like the lessons that you've learned from your direct experience and then going and doing awesome shit 
and and being able to still bring that back to to your center. So I'm a big fan of Gaston Rebuffat. Starlight and Storm is the book. But from that same group of books that I read around the same time, um, Conquistadors of the Useless, that is a like tagline for Patagonia, was written mm -hmm. by I think, Lionel Terre, who was another one of those group of, of, of individuals. But yeah, I've always been really inspired by people who go and do awesome shit that maybe is easy to, to say was impossible before they did it, and yet preserved their autonomy and sovereignty through the effort. So that's why I, I, I celebrate what you're doing. That's why I say I'm a fan of yours, because I see you're out there doing stuff that's difficult and you know, you're, 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 you're maintaining your personhood. You're not, you know, waving a banner or, I mean, it's kind of an abstract idea, but you're, you're not shrinking away from taking responsibility for yourself in those times and places. And I think that's beautiful. I think that's really important. I think that's a really valuable experience to have. And it's a really valuable lesson to say to young people and stuff like you can go do what you want to do, no matter how difficult and you don't have to outsource your free will. You just have to be willing to fail. You just have to be willing to take the hits and learn the lessons and keep moving forward, you know? So that's that's my diatribe about, you know, um, about kind of being inspired by by uh, the romance of, of climbing and, and um, kind of the poetry of the mountains and so forth. Um, but yeah, man, I I, uh, I wonder what what your take is on all that. Um, you know, you're definitely right about one thing. Like, uh, it's it's a very personal kind of thing. It's something that I do for myself, and I think a lot of people are quite similar in that they're doing it because it's something that they want to do and something that maybe they don't even want other people to know. Uh, I've definitely gotten into the habit of not taking pictures and not telling people where I'm going just because I need it to be strictly for myself, I need to make sure that I'm doing this because I want to do it. But I definitely haven't lost any respect for anybody that does it for other reasons. Um, one person that comes to mind is the Duke of Abruzzi, which you've probably read up in some of those books. Yeah, I've heard of him reference. I don't know the first thing about him though, but I've heard that, that title. Do you know the Abruzzi Ridge on K2? I've heard that also. So uh, he didn't successfully summit it, but somewhere, I uh, believe it was uh, very late 18th century, maybe like 1896 or 1895, that he led an expedition up whatever that glaciated valley is to K2 to attempt to summit it on the now called Abruzzi Ridge. Uh, he did it for, I mean, if you look at it written down on any book, it'll probably say something along the lines of for the glory of Italy, but that man pursued mountaineering pretty relentlessly and pretty extremely as well. He got the first ascent of Mount Logan in Canada, which uh, that occurred in 1898. I mean, they, like you said earlier, the technology that they had at the time, they had 10 people pushing one 2000 pound sled up a glacier for weeks, months. Um, completely relentless in his pursuit of the mountains. But on paper, his excuse is for the glory of Italy. Um, whatever excuse you have to find to find that kind of peace, I'm happy with. Um, another one that I thought was very interesting that I had a lot of appreciation for was people who did it for religious reasons. 
And that occurred a lot in the early climbing of the Canadian Rockies. There was a lot of reverends out there who climbed to commune with God. And I'm not a religious person myself, but I have a huge amount of respect for that because in one sense or another, I am doing the same thing, Right. Uh, at least in my mind. Don't you feel like you've had that direct experience of, you know, a power greater than yourself in the mountains? I'm definitely the smallest thing out there, that's for sure. I, uh, yeah. I, um, I have, you know. Uh, yeah. I, um, you want to see a watercolor I did? I'm really, <laughs> I'm really proud of this. I, I, I am not a painter, but right. I was telling Chris Larson Gould about it. Um, I, uh, when I was in Santa Cruz and trying to figure out where to go with myself, I found a uh, um, retreat in Sedona, Arizona with a group of eccentric people that were like really wild and crazy. Uh, they were uh, part of the hybrid children community. And if you never heard about this, it's although maybe you have because you live in Shasta, but uh, it's it's not far from the the ethos of kind of the new age religions that are that are um, rooted or, or 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 you know thriving in in the Shasta area. Um, the new age the the hybrid children idea is that people um, that are that are a part of that community think that they are somehow conduits for alien children like they 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 are they are the the the, the they are able to channel I, I can't tell you more than that because i was on the periphery and i and i kind of was just like or you know whatever you say but i went on this um on this uh um, retreat and it was called the live your excitement retreat and it was like a few hundred bucks and it was an opportunity to go travel to sedona arizona and be somewhere beautiful and they provided all the food, and we went on like these hikes in the red rocks of Sedona, which are, which are beautiful. If you have you ever been to Sedona? No, no, yes. I haven't. But I know what it looks like. Yeah. Yes, sir. Sedona's a cool spot. It's Sedona's a real like hippie enclave community in the same way that Shasta is. Um, you know, lots of crystal shops and sound healing, and 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 I don't think it's arbitrary in that. The Red Rock of, of, of Sedona is really a powerful place. There's a place called Cathedral Peak that's however many thousands of feet, you know, of this red rock that's beautiful. And, like, there's no cell service, and, it, you know, it, it has, like, high winds, you know, and, and in the same way the Shasta does. So, anyway, I go on this, on this retreat, and among other, like, fun things, like, we did a, a sound healing thing where you're in a room and, a, you know, dude's hitting, like, singing bowls and gongs and shit, and it's, like, you know, real kind of a neat feeling, you know, your body vibrates. That was, like, one thing we did. We went on these walks. We had, like, circles where we would talk about, you know, whatever the fuck, and people kind of really opened up, and it was a real, real, you know, it was a nice thing to participate in, right? Beside the fact that, you know, some people were, were kind of into their own, you know, um, things. Uh, but one of the things that I, and the reason I bring this up that was so neat is we did, we did two watercolors and, and they gave us, you know, the, the, the paper and the watercolor thing. And we sat around a table and we're eating this like organic, you know, this and that and the other thing. 
and uh, you know, vegan and whatever. And, and uh, the first one that we painted was paint yourself as a ch- as a child, your childhood self. And then after we did that, it was paint uh, you know who you are now or where you're going or like what you're what you're moving toward, right? And so I made two, and I'll show you. And I, I keep them in my world atlas. How badass is this book? Gotcha. Right? So the first one is a really super abstract representation of me as a kid. So you've got like the water of life inside of which is like the, the seashell that represents my body. And then you've got like the red and yellow of like my internal landscape and it's like coming, coming out. And so there's me as a kid. And I just thought it was kind of a cool, kind of a cool, uh, you know, geometric image and I had fun painting it and that was fun. But that's not the reason I bring up all this, this, um, this diatribe. I bring it up because the one that I did about where I was moving toward, I genuinely feel was prophetic for me as as an experience of my own life because I drew, bless you, I drew a pyramid and I do think that it's fair to say that it was a representation of a mountain. The pyramid has a light coming out the top, which is kind of how the, the, the pyramid or the mountain is connected to the heavens, if you like. And Shasta, I think, is a really beautiful mountain in that it's arguably a place where the earth meets the sky. Um, And then there's a lenticular around it. But there's the lenticular has an eye like a dragon. And then in the valley, there's the green and the blue of the, you know, the waters of the valley and the, the, you know, vegetation of the valley. And then there's these all these red stripes like the, the violence of the of the people or whatever and I'm bro I'm really proud of this I think this is a cool fucking pa- uh, little painting so I'm gonna I'm gonna hang it up or laminate it or do whatever I have to do to to preserve it but the thing that's a trip to me and the reason that I want to just kind of share this with you is I I made this long before I moved even to Tahoe to begin skiing professional like for work and so forth and and of course before I went to Shasta but I do and then, in short, I had the experience of being up on Shasta during a lenticular, and like a big whirlwind happened right in front of me, and it was a really trippy experience. It was really scary. Um, but here's the image, and, and tell me what you think of that. Isn't that cool? Hmm. That is a good one. Kind of neat, right? Yeah. So I can tell that it means more to you than... And the image just portrays. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm I'm proud of that. The the the, the reason I, I I found it to be meaningful, and I continue to find it to be meaningful, is that I then went on to experience it. You see, it was like it was like I had I had created something artistically that then I went on and experienced in the real world. So it was a weird like vision into my future um which is a which is an odd thing to try to think through so yeah i just wanted to share that with you i remember when um i remember like the couple of days after you went on that little ski trip you went down and you told me about it when we were working the next day at the ski park um yeah shasta is a pretty special mountain i mean just 
actually a friend of mine who's um, quite a climber. He lives out somewhere in the county. Uh, he used to do a lot of mountaineering, and he told me one of the reasons why he sticks around Shasta is because on that mountain he can experience any condition that he's experienced anywhere else in the world. Um, which, you know, coming from him, he's done several winter expeditions in the 8,000-meter peaks, uh, a winter expedition on Choyu, lots of years climbing in the Canadian Rockies and in South America. So hearing that from him, it's just kind of like, you know, you're pretty correct about that. Maybe you don't get all the steep terrain that you can find uh, especially easily. There's a lot of extreme hazards associated with the steeper terrain on the mountain, but the weather up there is something that I've only ever experienced down in um, down in Chile on the northern Patagonian ice cap. The winds that we experienced there were insane, enough to like lift you off your feet and take you out of camp. And the mountain is no exception. I've seen the mountain rip people off the ridge lines and throw them down the hill. Um, it gets very serious up there. So, I uh, man, I love it. I do too. I do too. I think that the idea, the metaphorical representation of dragons is not far off from the truth. I think that saying that there are magical creatures that live in wild places is not far from the truth. I think telling somebody when the, when the seas are calm, that you see that you know point out there, well, when the time is right, there's a dragon that comes out of the ocean and if you get in the wrong place, it'll fucking eat you, is not far from the truth when you think about the relevance of big waves, right? And the same is true, I would argue, about mountains. Um, when the time is right, you know, there's, a, there's a, an energy up there that you can feel and that you can connect with or you can be, you know, touched by. And I have. And it's awesome. And I am reverent of it. You know, I don't contend to be on its level. I don't contend to have any dominion or even communion with it. But I contend to be allowed to be in its presence if I, you know, mind my P's and Q's and, and, am, and am, you know, mindful and respectful and, you know, fortuitous and, and, and willing to face the the music so to speak so yeah man that's kind of part of my uh you know for lack of a better word spirituality is just a genuine um vision of the natural world as fantastic fantastical um in in the sense of like childhood fantasy with you know elves and you know, dragons and, and knights and, you know, saving the kingdom and stuff. I think that all of that representation is, is, is a distillation of the truth as opposed to a diversion from it or a, you know, uh, um, you know, when you talk about, uh, you know, stories like uh, Dune or Lord of the Rings or Star Wars, I think that there's really, really profound realities found in the messages of those stories and that is why they are so widely accepted and, and popular um i think a life without fantasy or a life without uh, mythology in that 
representing, you know, the hero or the or the wise king or the eat or the cruel tyrant or the the, the the devouring mother, you know, mother nature or the fertile, you know, void. Like without an exploration of all of those archetypes, you know, in whether it's through like Jungian psychology or, you know, your favorite fantasy or science fiction or, or you know, story. I think a, a life without those things is somehow sanitized and sterilized from the magic of, of direct experience. And I, a, I continue to be animated by that love and fascination for and of the natural world. And um, the reason why I want to continue to put out content about my you know, journeys and travels and adventures and things is, is, is probably, you know, a sprinkle of my own, you know, narcissism and megalomania, but, but more so a want to somehow in small part show others the depth of magic in the natural world, you know, for lack of a better word, magic. Um, and, and I think that climbers, skiers, surfers, you know, uh, the list goes on and on are aware of, 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 of what I'm talking about, because, because I think it's impossible to go into those, you know, highly charged and, and, and wonderfully powerful environments without coming back with a sense of this awe that I'm trying to speak to. And, and in the, in the best of all worlds, I think you come back, you, you go out and you come back enough and then you can write the story, you know, you can, you can share that, that then catalyzes the next person who lives in the inner city or, or what have you to go on an adventure. Right. And I think it, I think it's, I think that's the way it works. I think it, it gets passed down through the generations, whether it's an oral tradition or it's a film or, you know, it's, it's, it's poetry or it's a, it's a, it's a climbing, you know, log or what have you. Um, so I, I, I'm, you know, I'm crazy, but I, I think everybody's crazy. So I don't feel bad saying that, but, um, you know, I, I, I do think that there's a beauty in mysticism and fantasy and metaphor and poetry. And, and the thing that's allowed me to uphold the sanctity of those things without being unnecessarily cynical or critical is the natural world. Um, I had to grow up and like get a, get a job and you know what I mean? Like stabilize in society before I could delve deeper into the world of fantasy. But, you know, as I've gotten older and been able to like defend myself, you know, verbally, intellectually, psychologically, the more I've been able to enjoy these things that I think are beyond direct representation, beyond articulation, beyond the power of language to encapsulate fully and still like not have to be apologetic, not have to not have to feel like I'm in some camp because I'm not a reductionist or something. You feel me? Like, I know that was kind of a winding monologue, but I wonder if that made any sense. It did make sense. Um, mainly I was just trying to find out how I do the same thing. And I, I guess I do. Um, Cause there are certain things out there that are very difficult to describe, particularly the feeling that you get when you're out in these kind of areas and these environments on the ocean or high up in the mountains. And I, I definitely saw it as a way to escape, like not just society, but I almost saw it as like escaping the whole world 
Like I really am stepping into another realm where life doesn't work the same, where air molecules don't move the same. Um, it completely changed land. And, you know, I always thought of it as like a frozen desert. So I see what you mean by the magic of it. Um, some of those analogies I don't quite entirely get, but I also don't read very much fantasy. So maybe there's a few things that I'm missing on that. But yeah, magic is uh, probably more accurate than not way of saying it. Yeah, man. Uh, uh, I just spoke to um, a, a real... Um, uh, I would say, I don't know if you would agree, but a mentor of mine, and he's an author and, and filmmaker, his name's uh, Ontario Ali. I just posted the conversation and um, we talked about a lot of stuff and one was, you know, the, the, the power of direct experience versus, you know, representation. You know, the map is not the territory, right? The menu is not the meal. Um, but uh, why did I bring that up? Um, uh, uh, I forget. I, I I keep wanting to talk about weather and the and the and the experience of having you know been on these mountains and 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 been so been so impacted. But uh, no, what what was it that we spoke to that I wanted to share? Um, I forget. Uh, it'll come. It'll come back to me. But. Um, He's a really inspirational dude, and he is really interesting. If you're ever interested in, in reading a book that'll just fucking blow your mind, uh, The Eight Circuit Brain by uh, Ontero Ali, A-N-T-E-R-O-A-L-L-I. And he just he just made a new film that uh, literally came out like two or three days ago um, called The Vanishing Field. Um, and uh, just a super interesting guy, and uh, he's been one of the, the catalytic forces for me to be able to follow my own passion, believe in my own direct experience, you know, express my own beliefs unwaveringly and, and run things through my own, uh, you know, um, way of making sense of things as opposed to outsourcing my, you know, my, my, my critical capacity. Um, to whatever group, uh, you know, but, uh, yeah. Uh, what was I going to say? Um, I, uh, I, I, I do. Hope to be a encouraging force to everybody that I can come into contact with, especially towards, you know, experiencing the natural world. I think, I think that's, uh, you know, a real foundational source of energy in my life. Um, can't really remember what the point that I was trying to make with bringing him up, uh, was exactly, uh, I just drank a cup of coffee and I came up super hard on the caffeine and now I'm like crashing already like an hour later, but, um, <laughs> But yeah, man, what, what, what else is on your mind? What are, what are you thinking about? I'll see if I can remember what I was trying to say. Mm. Not a lot is on my mind, really. 
just thinking about where to go next, what to do next, uh, what to do over the next six months. Mm. What are you thinking? Oh, probably go through a medic program, find a job that makes a little bit more money, regular life BS kind of stuff. Are you going to go through medic? You want to become a medic? Honestly, I just want to be able to do the same kind of work I do now more independently. And I'm finding that independent jobs and contracts are very difficult as an EMT. So for that reason, I've been thinking about going medic. NMETC is what I'm taking right now. NMETC is the name of the school. It's Northern Massachusetts. Uh, it's an yeah. online program. It's $451 a month. It's like seven grand total. It's a year long online course, the didactic, the, the classroom. Then you go to Massachusetts to do like a two week practical. I am like a little over halfway through it. We just did our cardiology module, which was the most difficult in my opinion. We're doing um, like toxicology and other medical emergencies now. Um, and our practical boot camp. So all of the practical skills are done in like 11 days. You just go for eight hours a day every day for 11 days and you get through all of your, your um, practical testing and then it's, it's clinicals and internships. Um, yeah, I, I very much enjoy the experience that I've had from emergency medicine and I hope to continue to do so. Um, I, 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 uh, I've recognized the the, necess the need to continually educate myself if if for no other reason than to just cement my you know place on the totem pole and in the herd so that I can you know bill X amount of dollars for my time and and you know not have to take so much shit from being an EMT uh, but as well because uh, yeah man I, I think it's, it's a good opportunity and, it, and it'll open the doors for uh, for me. Uh, moving forward. I didn't ski patrol this year. I thought I was going to get a job at Bachelor and I just don't know Bachelor at all. I have zero hill knowledge. And so I came in with a bunch of years of patrolling. I patrolled for four years, um, but I didn't know the mountain at all and I didn't get the job. It was, uh, it was highly competitive. I'm told there were, you know, so many applicants and I was just like, fuck, like mm -hmm. when push came to shove, I had to like get a job. Like I just, I just came in thinking like, you know, like my, my shirt size is large, you know, like, like they were just going to fucking, you know, give me a locker and, um, they didn't give me the job. So I, I, uh, taught ski lessons. I coached ski racing for high school, which was a really neat experience. First time I've ever done that. Um, so I got, I was on the hill a lot, but I didn't patrol this year, but I did do a ride along with them. Mm -hmm. so that was pretty cool. The, the patrol director, uh, Betsy Norson, who's wonderful, uh, said, you know, like, we had a you know, ton of people apply, but uh, do a ride along with us this year and, and see what you think and learn the mountain and so forth. So maybe I'll work patrol next year. I'm not sure. Uh, but I love Bend. We're really enjoying it up here. And uh, yeah, man, it was, it was weird to not patrol after patrolling for so many years, you know, uh, and just like taking it for granted. But it's it was good for me to get shook up a little bit and have to reevaluate, you know, and it was an opportunity, it has been an opportunity, continues to be an opportunity uh, to level up and get my shit together and focus on health and, and educating myself and learning the mountain 
Um, so yeah, man, if you're looking for a, a medic program, uh, ask me again in, in a few months. Um, but uh, NMETC has been really cool. They are a great opportunity if you're like me and can't sit in a fucking classroom for eight hours a day listening to somebody tell you how it is because um, I can't do that. My body doesn't want to do that. Um, I go stir crazy, man. I got to just move. I'm a kinetic guy. And NMETC is wonderful because the lectures that they do online are uh, recorded. Everyone is recorded. And then you have five days to participate in that lecture and, and you know, uh, submit your attendance uh, to get credit for that lecture. And then you just got to take quizzes and tests online. And, you know, if you're not a fucking dummy, you can you can get through that. Um, and uh, I mean, obviously, I'm not through the woods yet, but I'm working on it. And uh, it's been cool, man. I've, I've got my uh, got my you know handbooks that I've been that I've been using that have been really helpful, you know. Um, and uh, you know, been getting through it. Got a good grade so far. And then the clinicals and internships are going to be really where the rubber hits the road. You know, that's that's the start of the real work to become certified as a paramedic, as I'm sure you know. But yeah, yeah, I I, I encourage you, man. If, if if you're at all interested in in, uh, in an online course. Uh, check it out. I, I'm blessed that my uh, my my parents are willing to to financially help me because I would not be able to afford it if it wasn't for that. Uh, we have not been making big bucks. I just got a gig um, as an EMT on a construction site uh, up here at a Facebook uh, data center um, for S1 Safety First. Uh, yeah. I thought it was going to work for. Have you ever heard of them? Familiar. Uh, I thought it was going to work for Wilderness Medics. I got all my certs in for them. But uh, mm -hmm. I haven't gotten a call from them. And then I just applied for this other job online and it's like, it's good money. So, uh, you know, and it's just, it's um, testing people for the symptoms of the virus. Like uh, just taking temperatures really is all with like a yeah. thermal pen. So I'll be doing that and uh, for, for the next few months probably. But um, yeah, man, if, if you have an inkling at all, feel free to come up to Bend, dude. I'd love to, love to host you. I'd love to show you the, the mountains up here we could go tour or, or whatever so uh you know um uh, invitation on the table if, if if you're at all inclined um i don't know what you're up to in shasta now that the um the ski parks uh closed down well the official word was it closed down due to the virus so uh that helped out the unemployment situation oh i see sure dude like three point some million people just applied for for unemployment have you seen that like yeah by far the most ever in in history you know mm -hmm. but uh, uh i'm pretty i think what i'm going to do right now is i'm going to basically spend as much time as i can outside get into the best physical shape possible and wait and hope that this virus doesn't completely destroy mountain guiding season do that until fires pick up make some good money and then hopefully make enough money that I can go through the medic program here without taking on any financial debt, any at all. Preferably not working too, because uh, sounds like a hard course. Speaking of which, I am really glad to hear that you're still pursuing your medic. Um, I wasn't sure if you were gonna do that or not, but I'm glad yeah, to hear that. I, I withdrew twice from COS. I, I, I had a good grade, I didn't fail. But I mean, quitting is failing, to be fair, and I quit. But I quit twice. Um, 
I just, I mean, you heard my, my flippant explanation and I stand by that. I am not one that learns well being told what to learn. I, I have to get my hands on stuff. I have to, I have to do things at my own pace. I'm just, I'm, I tend to be a really defensive personality type at my worst. And that's something that ex is exacerbated in the classroom setting. And so I just really had a hard time, man. I, you know, I'm a grown ass man. I'm 33 and, you know, I, I don't do well with politics. I'm not a bureaucrat, you know, I'm not, I'm not one to not say what I mean, to not say how I'm feeling for any, for any reason, you know, for any want to, to, you know, keep the peace or, 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 uh, or not get along, you know, to go, go along to get along. And to be fair, no, nothing, nothing terrible happened in my time at College of the Siskiyous. I, I, I learned a lot. Um, I just, I got to my psychological breaking point twice at the same time, bro. It was like the stupidest thing. Like I literally, like, you know, in in trying to swim from one side of the pool to the other, I swam more than halfway and then swam back. You know what I'm saying? I did the course twice and got, you know, about halfway both times, you know? And, and again, I, I, I didn't have a bad grade. Uh, I just am a big believer in people like me, manic people, people that are, I don't know, manic's the best word that I can use for it because it's kind of a negative valence. So I feel like it's fair in that it's a little bit self-deprecating because to be fair, I want to take responsibility for my actions and my failings. And I don't like to be told what to do. So my thing is just let me just memorize every protocol and let's let's get after it. But the thing that I've found to be the case in medicine, uh, at least in emergency medicine, is Everybody's got a way that they feel is the right way to do things. And God bless them. I do too. Um, but it's difficult for me to try to embody somebody else. I can only be me, you know, and man, did my personality present an, a, a difficulty to navigate for me in the classroom setting. I think I still had a little bit of growing up to do. I'm sure I probably still do, but, uh, all that being said, online uh, courses for me are, are much more uh, doable. So yeah, man, I, I, I haven't given up on the goal. I, I'm, 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 I'm working, working towards it. That being said, I need to put in a lot more time studying. I can get up and go for you know miles and miles and miles and you know thousands of vertical feet and I can go swim miles and do this, that and the other thing. But man, to sit down and educate myself is something that I uh, find very difficult. So uh, hats off to, to you and anybody else who, you know, chooses to do so because it's not easy. I mean, it's certainly not easy for me to say to one's self, I don't know this, you know, body of knowledge that I want to acquire and I'm going to see what I can, you know, input into my brain. I'm going to see how much code I can write that then I can recall, you know, that's a fucking difficult thing to do. So I, I like intellectuals, you know, I like, uh, people who educate themselves. The thing that scares me is people that do so at the dearth of their own development as an autonomous person, right? Like 
If you're, if you're, if a person is simply representing a system, there's no person. I would argue the thing that I find competence a representation of is a knowledge of all the systematic knowledge around the task at hand and yet a fully anchored boat in the bay of one's own critical thinking capacity and one's own you know direct sensory input like if all a person has to pull from is past knowledge that person's not learning in the present so i often would default to well this is my thinking this is what makes sense to me more of that what is it right-brained thinking and kind of discount the the systems of knowledge that have been generated from past exploratory action that left-brained system of, of knowledge all the protocols and so forth so for me i i need to more fully learn how to uh, listen to people that know more than me and that's a skill and it's a developed skill and it's a skill that brings humility and it's a skill that is valuable and it's a skill that i don't have as much as i'd like so working on it yeah that's one that definitely gets better as you practice it but um I think it is important to learn, you know, how somebody else does something to try and mimic them, to try and figure out why they're doing it, how they're doing it, why they think that's the best manner of doing it, and to learn how to do that without losing your own sense of how you want to do it. Because figuring out what works well for somebody else, you're going to find two things that work great, and maybe you're going to find two to 20 things that don't work great. But the more things you can learn and the more different ways you can learn it, the better you'll be equipped. Um, I'm somebody that learns really well sitting down and looking at a book. I can do that for hours on end, regardless of how tedious the material is. And I can also sit and watch somebody and pay attention to them in a lecture for at the most two hours before I have trouble staying focused. But I, I learn well with that. I don't learn, learn well auditorily. Um, from someone telling me without being able to look at something. So that's something that I work more on. Um, trying to just be the most well-rounded learner, most well-rounded student, I guess. Um, you know, you work better kinetically w with your hands-on stuff. You're going to learn things more efficiently and faster. So definitely try and play to that strength. But, well, the more you practice it, the better you'll get at it. Yeah, word. I brought a basketball with me as often as I could because I could go to the gym next door and shoot uh, free throws. And so that was helpful for me to process, you know, turbulence. Um, uh, but uh, but yeah, well, more power to you, man. Very cool. That The fact that that course is available for little to no cost is a fucking godsend. Um, I think that emergency medicine is a wonderful profession. Uh, and uh, yeah, man, what a beautiful ability to be there for others when they're having a hard time, you know? Um, that's that's a, it's a pretty special thing, man, so. Definitely an ability. You know, yeah, it's heavy. I think it's a, another ability that you'll have to get used to 
that maybe we don't see as often, or I definitely don't see it very often working with mountain medics and at the ski park is dealing with people who are wildly unappreciative of what you're doing and how many times you'll see that over and over and over still trying to maintain the same kind of care for the people that you're caring for. Um, that's interesting. I haven't really seen that as much as I've heard of it, but that's, I guess that's what scares me the most. It's like, it's, is there a breaking point that I have? I don't know. With respect to how people respond to you in that setting? With uh, maintaining the same level of caring for somebody who's, you know, need your help. Maybe they don't need your help, but does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that does make sense. I've worked with medics, and some of them uh, had suffered from that, I would say. You know, we've all been around salty medics, you know, and uh, yeah, I imagine that can take a toll on, on a person. Um, for me, I've always taken refuge in physicality. I've always taken refuge in exercise. It's a real great way of grounding myself and coming back to center and letting go the past cycles. You know, somebody says something to me and I respond to it with a thought pattern. And then for the next three hours, I'm fucking, you know, animated by that bullshit. But if I just go do something right with my body and use my musculature and my, 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 my skeleton, I'm able to like, that's not in me anymore, you know? And, uh, that's, that's been a great, that's been a great utility to me. Um, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Um, yeah, you can't, you can't control others. Can you, you can't, can't make somebody appreciative. Can't make somebody, uh, give you what you want or what you expect them to give you. You can just control yourself. Yeah. And, um, that's enough. I mean, that's enough that, 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 that works, you know, that gets you where you want to go. I would, I would, I would argue. Um, uh, the thing that I find to be interesting is I think we are continually faced with the struggles that will, will yield the lessons that we need to learn until we learn them. And that's been my experience, right? If I don't learn the lesson, I get the same fucking puzzle, you know, I get the same struggle until I learn the dang lesson. And then I get some, you know, I get a, a more complex problem, you know? So, uh, yeah, more power to you, bro. Um, you know, I, I don't want to keep you too long. You, we've already gone an hour and a half, so I appreciate your time. Uh, yeah. definitely, we should definitely do this again sometime. And I'm serious, man. If you want to come up to Bend, let me know. I'd love to see you. I'd love to go have an adventure. I'm, I'm super down anytime. Uh, we got a yeah. couch to sleep on. It's all good. Um, so, uh, yeah, man, should we wrap it up and we'll, and we'll, uh, we'll talk about an adventure sometime. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'll let you know what, uh, what my plan is. Cause I definitely have a lot of time. It would be really nice to go check out McLaughlin. I've always wanted to do that one. Yeah, dude. McLaughlin is on. McLaughlin's beautiful. Uh, my buddy, Eric Rude, uh, who I went to, to middle school with, who I still keep in contact with, he lives in Medford, uh, has taken me to the Lake of the Woods, which is at the base of McLaughlin. And we look up at McLaughlin, like, yeah, we got to climb that. You know, it's beautiful. Just a yeah. perfect, like, cinder cone, you know? Um, so I'm super down, bro. Well, hey, thank you very much for your time. I really enjoy doing these. I think it's really valuable if, if for nobody else but myself, but I, I think that being able to share these conversations, these just honest, open conversations are really 
a powerful thing, especially in this day and age where we need to fucking stay away from each other, right? So uh, thank you. I, I appreciate your time, man. Well, I just appreciate talking to you. That's really the only reason I came through. Well, right on, brother. I'll talk to you soon. So uh, 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 until next time. Awesome. I'll talk to you later.